Please pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As of this past Friday, Christmas season is officially over. And now it's back to work for another year. I hope that all of you got plenty of rest over the past couple of weeks. And uh, while it was so cold outside at the end of December that you got to huddle up by a warm fire in your Christmas jammies, drinking hot chocolate and watching an endless stream of Christmas movies. Um, I guess some of you might not be the biggest fans of Christmas movies, but I know that some of you here like them so much it's almost a problem. Uh, this year, I had such a full calendar that I only managed two Christmas movies. How sad is that? Um, my kids and I watched Christmas with the Cranks, always a must-see, and uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol, another big winner. Um, but I didn't manage to squeeze in one of my favorite Christmas movies, which is The Polar Express. And now I'll have to wait a whole nother year, uh, because you can't watch... Christmas movies after Epiphany. Can you, Michelle? <laughs> so the Polar, <laughs> the Polar Express is a really cute movie. It's full of snow and steam trains and elves and presents and hot chocolate and children getting all their Christmas wishes, all the usual classic ingredients. Plus this other big ingredient um, that's become such a staple of Christmas movies, belief. You notice that? Um, if you ever find yourself in the plot of a Christmas movie, the rule is that you've got to believe. Maybe believe in the spirit of Christmas, whatever that is, um, or believe in Santa himself. But one way or another, there's this recurring theme in Christmas movies that belief in itself is valuable, even that it's powerful. It fuels the sleigh, the, uh, Santa's sleigh in the movie Elf. Uh, it allows the little boy in the Polar Express to hear the sound of the sleigh bell. The conductor stamps his ticket at the end of the movie with the word, believe. And believing makes the Christmas reality come true. Several of these Christmas movies, they start with some skeptical child or teenager who comes through the events of the movie to truly believe. Is converted, becomes a believer, and the result is happily ever after. And, uh, and as adults, we, we drink up these movies, don't we? Or, or some of us do. Um, and the tears roll down our faces. Why? We know that it's completely imaginary. It's totally disconnected from reality. We know that there is a wonder of Christmas. There is a miracle of Christmas. But all these movies have entirely forgotten what it is. They've forgotten the substance of that wonder. And they can only remember the feeling of it. So what's left is very cute, but admittedly very strange. <laughs> and one strange hangover is this importance placed on the idea of belief, because it's not completely wide of the mark, is it? In reality, in this actual world we live in, belief is truly an important thing, arguably even the most important thing. And as we begin our new sermon series in the Gospel of John this morning, I want to start by showing you just how important this idea of belief is throughout his gospel. 
Um, and then we're going to start at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 1 and think about, second, the substance of John's belief, uh, and third, the way to acquire belief if we don't have it. This is going to set us up for the whole semester of studying John's gospel. So the first point is, how important is belief in the real world? And throughout his gospel, John would say that it is extremely important. So uh, turn with me now to John chapter 20, page 907 of the Church Bibles. Um, we're going to start in John like at the end and then go to the beginning. So we're starting at John chapter 20, page 907. So I want to start with John's reason for writing his gospel, because he tells us in his gospel exactly why he sat down to write it in the first place. So find John chapter 20 and look at verse 30. Verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did John write his gospel? It's for you, dear reader. So that you, dear reader, might believe and live. So while you're still looking at that same page, just glance up to a paragraph before, and we get right into the middle of the story of doubting Thomas. Look at verse 27 of that story. Same chapter, chapter 20. In the story of Doubting Thomas, Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Or I like the NIV translation of Jesus' command here, Stop doubting and believe. Then it says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so finally here at the end of the story, Thomas joins the ranks of all the people who have come to believe in Jesus so far. And by this point, that's a group that already includes many hundreds, if not thousands of people. So let's go back in time and see that. Flip back to chapter 12 of John's gospel on page 898. 898, John chapter 12. And look at verse 10. John 12, verse 10 says, So the chief priests made a plan to put Lazarus to death, again, as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and what? Believing in Jesus. So the, the, this was so much of a problem that the uh, chief priests were worried about it. Again, turn back a page to uh, John uh, chapter 10, verse 42. At the Feast of Dedication... The story concludes, and many believed in him there. Back another page to chapter 8 and verse 30. Jesus teaches on being the light of the world, and verse 30 says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So I could, we could go on, but this repeated refrain of so many of John's stories about Jesus ends with how many people believed in him because of that event. We meet hundreds and hundreds of people in John's gospel. The important thing that John wants us to know about each person is, did they or did they not believe? So it's no surprise then that we also find this as a major theme of his prologue in chapter 1. Let's turn back there now. John chapter 1, verse 1, page 886. 
John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And in verse 6 of chapter 1, we meet John the Baptist, the herald and the witness of Jesus. And he comes, why? In verse 7, so that all might believe through him. And then again, down in verse 12, see this with me as we finish this journey. Um, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe, 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 believe. It's not all that different from those Christmas movies, is it? At the end of the story, Doubting Thomas is that skeptical teenager who comes face to face with the very object of his doubts and has a marvelous and joyous conversion, just like the Christmas movies. Except, of course, that the Gospel of John is very different from those Christmas movies in several fundamental and vital ways. One of them is that it's striking that the Gospel of John uh, never uses the word faith, not once. It was very much a favorite word of the Apostle Paul, but John always opts for the verb form to believe. And perhaps that choice of his is helpful for us today, who have become so over-familiar with the word faith and have too often seen people's faith become a stagnant and dusty thing and meaningless to them. Perhaps we need this reminder that belief is a verb. It's active. Uh, My New Testament professor at seminary, Rod Whitaker, who wrote the IVP commentary on the Gospel of John, suggests that John chose to only use the verb believe because the belief he's talking about is an active thing. It's a living thing, an ongoing thing. It's not a once-for-all decision that we might have made in the distant past, as might be understood from the static noun faith. But instead, it's alive and working today. So belief for John is also a relational thing. It's not merely rational. It's not just a signature at the bottom of a page of propositions. It's an ongoing relationship with a person who holds our trust. And thirdly, connected with those first two ideas, it seems that John wrote his gospel not primarily so that skeptics would come to believe for the first time. Although it does do that, it does have the power to produce belief from unbelief, as many thousands of Christian disciples today can testify. But instead, John wrote his gospel primarily to encourage people who had already believed to continue in their belief. In other words, to confirm and strengthen Christians in the belief they have. And that explains why John's gospel assumes such a lot of existing familiarity with the life of Jesus all the way through. And John also lingers long and hard on the questions of why are so many people violently opposed to this Christian way? It was because the Christians of John's day were hard-pressed on every side. They were thrown out of the Jewish synagogues as heretics who had too many gods, and they were persecuted by the Roman pagan as atheists who had too few gods. So torn between the two groups, they were outcast, they were beaten, they were stoned, they lost their jobs, and their property was confiscated. And John wrote his gospel to sustain them in what they had come to believe about Jesus and to urge them not to give up on their belief because it is infinitely precious. Belief, says John, is still the first necessary ingredient for eternal life. And so as we go through the Gospel of John together this semester, my hope and prayer for each one of you is that you would believe. If you've never believed before, that you would come to believe for the first time. And if you have already believed, 
that you would be strengthened in your believing. Because John agrees with the Christmas movies that belief is a precious thing, indeed a powerful thing, even vital. Although, of course, he has a slightly different view of what belief is. But now second, and this is far more important, what is the substance of belief? This is where the Christmas movies have very much lost their way. Um, Because you can't just believe in the abstract. Belief isn't a thing all by itself. It needs an object. It takes an object. You have to believe in something. Um, And therefore, belief in and of itself is not a good thing. It can be a good thing, but it can also be a very wicked thing. It depends on the object. It depends on what it is that you're believing. A strong conviction about a total lie is an evil thing. And the stronger the conviction is, the greater the evil is. Sincerity and even honesty are not good if you're wrong. So to stick a spear in some of those Christmas movies, sorry if I hurt your favorites, it is an evil thing to encourage a child to believe that which you know is not true. John would gag at the idea of believing a flight of fancy. He's interested in the truth, in eternal objective truth. He says, believe that. So where does John want to focus our belief this morning? He makes that supremely clear in this opening prologue of his gospel. Um, And I don't know how familiar you are with this prologue, um, whether you've read it many times or whether you're coming to it fresh this morning. Um, But the truth is that this prologue of John's gospel is strong drink. (laughs) This is strong drink. If you haven't yet come to know much of anything about God, wow, this is going to knock you sideways. Um, This is full-strength Christian Christian doctrine at 100% proof. Um, And uh, if you were going to stand up and give a persuasive speech to a room full of skeptics of different stripes, um, this is the way to get the whole room up and shouting before you finish your introduction. Um, This prologue offends Jewish monotheism. It offends Roman paganism. And it deeply offends Gnosticism and mysticism. And therefore, it identifies Christianity as a belief that no one shares who has not met the living Jesus. And I want to show you how John does that. So he begins in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Wonderful opening. In the beginning was the word. And the audience is okay so far. Uh, The Jewish scholars at the time are going to be thinking about the word of God. Um, And the Greeks and the Romans are going to be thinking about the logos, which is the underlying reason and wisdom behind all things. In the beginning was was the word. That's okay. Both of them are thinking about the very beginning of time, the creation, the same beginning as Genesis 1. And in their own framework of understanding, Neither was going to have any problem that the Word existed from the beginning. So John goes on. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a a little bit obscure, perhaps. (laughs) A little poetic. Maybe it's okay. Um, The Word with God means it's distinct from Him. And the Word was God means it's not distinct from Him. A bit confusing. Uh, A little contradictory, maybe. But if we think about the Logos, or about Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Maybe we can go with that. Um, Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that has been made. We're still good with this. 
the word is the creator of all things. That's still compatible with the Old Testament idea of lady wisdom. Proverbs says the word did make all things. Um, and then we're still within the realm of acceptable descriptions of the logos. John goes on, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That sounds pretty nice. John's word is the light of men. King David said that. The Jewish mind would also be thinking here about Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They were all waiting for that light to come. Next in the prologue, we get the part about the witness, starting in verse 6. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. And he came to bear witness to the light. He sounds like a type of Elijah, who was also long awaited. Uh, then we get to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And that still sounds like a good thing. Light is good. Maybe the audience is starting to get a few warning bells at this point, uh, in the, both the Jewish and the Roman mind, because a light that gives light to everyone, that sounds a little bit alarmingly egalitarian. John has more, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John, I think now you may be stretching this personal light metaphor a bit far. Uh, now it's sounding like we're going to get criticized for not accepting some kind of new age hippie doctrine. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We're getting really pretty uncomfortable now. This is sounding super weird, maybe even blasphemous. Verse 13, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, now both sides of the audience are up and shouting, aren't they? John has set this up to make this meaning unmistakable, whether to a Jewish monotheist or to worshippers of the Greek and Roman pantheon. The word, the uncreated, pre-existing wisdom, divine wisdom of God, through whom all things were made, the true light has now been born as a human being in history already and has dwelt among us. This was completely impossible and insane to the Jewish mindset at the time, and hardly any less so to Greeks or Romans. But John absolutely means God in the flesh. And this is unmistakably the very thing that John is setting up to be believed, to be the object of belief, to be received and not rejected. But the prologue goes on, and over the din of those outraged voices, the rest of the prologue is an appeal to the witnesses, to the evidence. Um, John lays them out. First, he himself, the author, he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, we have seen it personally. We're eyewitnesses. Listen to what we have seen the second witness is the Old Testament itself. Because John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In Greek, full of charis and aletheia. And those two words are the Greek equivalents of the Hebrew chesed and emet. Chesed and emet, grace and truth. But it comes directly from Exodus 34. Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he asked to see God's glory. But God would only let him see his back 
lest Moses die. And as the glory of God passed by Moses on the mountain, it says in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and amet, which we usually translate abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But we might also say, full of grace and truth. So John's point is, look for yourselves and see whether the man Jesus matches the self-revelation of God in the Old Testament. The third witness is John the Baptist, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Think what a noble witness John would have made. The son of a high-ranking priest in Jerusalem who had a miraculous birth that everybody knew was a miracle. John was very popular in his day. The fourth witness then is the church itself, the assembled group of disciples. Uh, The miraculous effect that Jesus has had on his followers. Verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have all received grace through him. Could we have received grace and you not see the effects? Uh, Look at the people who have received this grace and then say whether grace is coming through this Jesus. And this verse is not to throw shade on Moses. John's a faithful Jew, and he views the law as a gracious gift of God. The comparison John's making is found in the verbs, because we see that the law was given through Moses. It was only given. God stayed up in heaven and sent it down. It was sent down by the God of grace and truth. It's a lovely gift, but it was given from afar. The verb is different. Jesus came. Grace and truth came down in person, and that was an altogether better and more wondrous gift. It was grace added to grace. So John concludes in verse 18, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. (laughs) So now, if we haven't enraged the Gnostics and the mystics before now, this is the point where they would be up and shouting. Uh, Because in John's day, there were several mystical Jewish cults, like the community at Qumran. And there were also Gentile cults, like the Gnostics. And both of them based their whole religion on like secret knowledge, on people having visions and dreams, or mystical voyages into heaven. So people would enter trances, and they would see visions of God, and they would come back and say, heaven's like this, God's like this, he wants us to behave like this. And whole religions were built on what they saw and what they taught. It's not completely gone in our own day. But John in the beginning of his gospel, just smashes all of them up in one sentence. No one has ever seen God. Do you hear that? No one has ever seen God. That just smashes up all of the mystery cults. No one's seen him. All of that stuff you're believing is complete rubbish. It's a delusion and a lie. Chuck it out. No one has seen God, except this Son of God, who came from the Father's side. So Jesus alone can speak for what God is really like. Jesus alone knows what he's talking about and speaks from knowledge and not speculation. So John's prologue here is strong drink, but it clearly lays out for us the whole case of his gospel right from the beginning. This is what he calls 
all people everywhere to believe that Jesus was and is the eternal creator made flesh and that he alone can and will reveal God to us. This is the founding belief of Christianity. John sets it up to be believed. No one can be a Christian whose life is not built on this foundation. Um, it's, It's not enough by itself, of course. So what we have is another 21 chapters to work all of this out. And I hope you'll stay with us for that journey. Because John promises that the belief that this is true comes with the reward of eternal life. All right, so now third, how might we acquire this belief if we don't have it? That might be a real question that a lot of us have today coming out of this. How can I believe it? Or how can I believe it more? Maybe we, we, we listen to these words of John, and we don't want to be skeptical, but we still are. We see the real value in believing, uh, but we know that we can't believe just by wanting to. And if that's you, then, friend, I have very good news for you, um, because we have a mighty resource to help us with this very need. In our hands this morning is this Gospel of John. And we know from John's own pen that it was written for the very purpose of inspiring and sustaining your belief. This gospel was inspired by the Holy Spirit to have authority and power to do that very thing in your life. So please, come with us on this journey through John's gospel this spring, and we'll see if this ancient treasure can't help you in your believing too. John hits the problem of unbelief with the full court press in his gospel. First, he presents the evidence that his own eyes and ears have seen and heard, and he writes it down to share with the world. So will you look at what John saw with unbiased and unclosed eyes? And will you listen to what John heard with unbiased and unclosed ears? Will you listen even free from the bias of sermons and Sunday schools past? Will you clear out all the old clutter and behold again the real Jesus as if for the first time? Meet the Jesus that John met and see for yourself whether you find him to be full of grace and truth as John did. Second, John has a wise and understanding mind. A mind that puts the reality of Jesus into context for us in this present world. So are you a philosopher? Are you an intellectual? You will find in John a stimulating thinker with a strong grasp of things the way they truly are. He can reason you into belief if you will follow him in his reasoning. Third, John has explanations for the unbelief of so many people at the time. He challenges them that perhaps they loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Or perhaps the consequences of who Jesus was were just too significant and too costly to be faced. Or perhaps Jesus would spoil some of their other plans. Will you take these critiques seriously in your own hearts? Fourth, John populates his gospel with very, very many people. People who came to believe in Jesus in all kinds of different ways and people who refused to believe in him for all sorts of different reasons. Surely in this rich and varied cast of characters, each one of us today can find someone who thought as we think and who responded as we might have responded or as we might have wanted to have responded. Their journey can help us with our own journeys. 
John's pages are full of the teachings of Jesus himself, preserved in long and detailed sections. The words of Jesus were powerful at the time when he spoke them. Each encounter Jesus had with a crowd gave birth to many new believers. May they be just as powerful as we hear them afresh in our own day. So for this season, while we study the Gospel of John together, I want to introduce for us um, a new hand signal at communion. This is going to be a little bit like a weekly altar call, if you've seen those done in other churches, uh, but we'll do it just a bit more privately. Uh, when you come forward for communion, you're used to doing this if you want to receive the bread and wine, or this if you want to receive a blessing instead. But starting today, I want to introduce a third gesture, um, another option for you, that when you get to the front of communion, uh, front of the line, you can raise your hand like this. If you have come to believe in Jesus today for the first time, or if you have come to believe in him in some new or fresh way today, so that the priest can say a quick prayer for you before you receive communion, and then we encourage you to go straight to the prayer ministers in one of the four corners of the church so they can pray with you a bit longer. But if belief comes through the word of God, then let's treasure it. Let's keep hold of it. If God sends it to us, let's respond to him and commit ourselves to him and pray that this seed that he has sown will be protected in our hearts because belief is so precious, powerful, and important. Let's not let it get away. Amen.